We began a new series of studies last week. We entitled the message last week, uh, It's a Matter of Life or Death, and it's still kind of the prevailing theme for the next several weeks for us. But this morning, I want us to consider for our times together the, the battle for foundational truths. The battle for foundational truths. Uh, we began last week by talking about it's become a matter of life or death. And, and we talked about there's a couple of reasons why that statement is true. Number one, uh, I simply asked you this question. Churches of yesteryear, y'all know what I'm talking about. Those churches of yesteryear that, that, that talk of the days when, and, and I've heard y'all say it. I, nearly every one of you I've heard say to me at one time, there was a time when Brother Billy C. would get up there and give the, uh, the, the Sunday school report and, and, and do the Sunday school dev devotion, and he would just bemoan the fact that we had less than 100 people here. We hadn't had 100 people here in a while. I mean, I, we, can, we, can, we can soften it, we can make everybody feel good if y'all want to, but it's not reality. You know what I mean? And, and somewhere we got to look at reality and say, we're going to have to make some changes in order to, to, to continue to exist. And that's why I began with, it's a matter of life or death. But I, I remember hearing, and, and I remember as a kid growing up, when churches were doing that well, it was a large part because every Thursday night, a large group from the church was going out, and they were knocking on doors, and they were inviting people to church, and they were, they were witnessing and sharing the gospel with others. And you say, well, Brother Jeff, are, are you trying to get us to go back to that? Absolutely not. It doesn't work today. It will not work today. You cannot show up unannounced and knock on doors and expect to get invited in. Our culture has changed. But the question I asked you was this. When we realized that Thursday night visitation didn't work anymore, we stopped it. But here's the mistake we made. We didn't replace it with anything, did we? We just quit doing much of anything, really, and decided, let the world come to us. Well, let me tell you, that's not going to work either. They are not beating down our doors to come in here to meet Jesus Christ. So the first problem was, is, is what are we doing? We stopped visitation and I, I, I think that was a wise idea in an organized Thursday night drop-in unexpected. But as we talked about last week from the book of Timothy, Paul said, I may be chained, but God's word's not changed. Chained, pardon me. In other words, God's word will still do what God sent it to do. We just got to figure out how to get it to them. And if that's not going to work, then that's fine. Stop that. But let's start something else. I, I'm not, I, listen, I'm not being judgmental, I'm not scolding, I'm not, I'm not fleecing the sheep as they used to call it. I'm just asking us, when do we fall on our face before God? As Paul did and say, God, our heart's desire for Arkadelphia is that we might see people saved. When do we as a church flood this altar and pour our heart out to God. God, if the visitation doesn't work, have we prayed this prayer? God, if visitation's not going to work anymore, show us what will. Anybody ask that of God in a while? 
And I'm not, listen, as I told you, this is not fussing at you. These are voids in my life too. So I'm preaching to myself right now. If you happen to fall in the boat with me, then we'll just row together and hopefully make the changes we need to. But God, if that's not going to work, show us what will. Y'all know I try to get involved in, in umpiring and working at, uh, at Washita's basketball games. Now they've asked me to do their softball games and, and help them in baseball and all this and that and the other. And I had somebody accuse me, not from this church, but I had somebody accuse me one time of just being greedy. I just could never make enough money. It has nothing to do with that. I'm trying to find a way to get into this community so that this community will know that this church has a pastor and this church as a whole cares about the people in this community. Until they see that, nothing's really going to change. That's why it's a matter of life and death to fall on our face. God, we have failed. Nobody wants to mention that we have failed. Nobody wants to confess that we have failed. Nobody likes to say, I've not done my duty, as Paul instructed Timothy last week. But until we get honest enough with God to say, God, we've not done our duty. And until we get to that place where we are pleading because of the state of the affairs of our community and the lost people by the thousands that are dying and going to hell daily, until we say, God, we understand that didn't work anymore. But because of what your word says in Timothy, your word is not chained. So there is something that will work today. And God, don't leave it up to our imaginations to figure out what that is. Because we might imagine something wrong. But God, your word's not chained. You said that. You promised that. So your word is still powerful. We just have to find that tool and become involved in it again. The second thing we understood from last week is not only the lack of activity on our part to reach a lost and dying world, but second of all, this culture is not the culture of 25 years ago. This culture has changed immensely. And so we must understand that their change has dictated that we have to change a little bit. I'm not, no, we're not changing the message because God's word is not chained. God's word is not bound. God's word has not become weak in the world in which we live. I refuse to believe that the word of God cannot do the job anymore. But we have to understand it's simply a matter of this. Our culture today does not have the same understanding that the culture of my young, my young life had. Even lost people when I was a young kid, let's just be honest. When I was a young kid, we got into a lot of trouble. We got into a lot of mischievousness, not big time trouble, mischief, mischievousness. We, you know, we, were, we would sometimes, you know, break a window out or do this and that and the other, but we would do this, we would cut donuts here, we would do that. You know, guess where we never did it? Why? Even as a lost person, I knew there was something special about this place. If I was going to paint graffiti, it wasn't going to be on the walls of this building. If I was going to take that little old truck and see if I could get it to bark a tire once and now and then, it wasn't going to be on this parking lot. 
Why? I had an understanding that this generation no longer has. I talked to kids walking up and down the street. I haven't got a clue what church is. I knew what church was every moment of my life. So, well, yeah, you were raised in it. You're right, I was. My mama told the doctor, not that the doctor told her that, that I don't think they told him that back then. Again, a change in the generation. If the doctor would have told my mama, you don't need to take that kid to church for three or four weeks, my mama would have said, i tell you where he will be this coming next Sunday. So, I, yes, I've been raised in church since the first Sunday I was out of the hospital. But I had a lot of lost friends, and they knew. Our culture has changed, y'all. You say God, and they're like, which one? Nobody ever said that when I was a kid. You talked about sin, and they didn't say, well, what are you talking about? They knew sin. They understood the consequence of sin. And through the course of this series, we're going to see all this and how that the Apostle Paul changed his message from the message that Peter preached, and it was because of the culture in which he found himself. So we got a twofold problem. Number one, we're not doing our duty. And number two, we're still trying to use tactics that will not work because our culture has changed. February 21st, 2018, ironic that that is almost exactly to the day a year ago. February 21st, 2018, Brother Billy Graham passed away. Shortly after Billy Graham's passing, there were news articles that were written and there were, there were uh, things that were said in, 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 on the news and so forth concerning the great evangelist. One headline said this. I'll read this twice because I want this to sink in. There will never be another Billy Graham because the world that made him possible is gone. I would, recommend, I would suggest to you that a Billy Graham could rise up today and not be as successful as the Billy Graham that passed away last year was in his prime. And it's not because of Billy Graham. It's because our culture has changed. The world that made him possible no longer exists. I won't tell you which particular news affiliate said this, but in a discussion one particular time, a news, news agency said this, he basically just preached the Bible. He did so in the America of that time. That was enough. We live in a different country now. Let that sink in. He lived in a time when you could just preach the gospel. And I'm not saying do more to the gospel. But you see, and that's, that's what's become fascinating to me about this particular study. Uh, I, I began reading this book, and it was just fascinating. But Jimmy came up to me shortly thereafter and said, Hey, have you seen this book? And I said, Yeah, I'm reading it right now. Answers in Genesis is the group that has put forth some of the study material that I'm using right now. They began here a while back doing a... A, a Sunday school literature. And they also began to work on building the model of the ark, a life size of the ark. And they began to create the creation museum. 
And it's still my plan sometime next year to take anybody from this church that would like to go. And if I'm the only one, I'll just go by myself. But you see, they began to do all this work. And one of our sister churches up in Malvern, Second Missionary Baptist Church, began to use their, their literature. And my brother goes there, my mother goes there, and they said, Jeff, have you seen or heard of Answers in Genesis? And I said, no. And they said, well, they're the ones that's put together this and this and this and this literature. And you know what my thought was? I'll be honest. You want, you want to hear my honest thought? If I was going to write a literature to reach the lost, you know what my thought was? I ain't writing about Genesis. If I'm going to write a literature to reach the lost, I'm going to go to the Gospel of John. Why? Right off the bat, who do we meet? Nicodemus, a Samaritan woman. We meet all of these. We have these teachings of Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd, and he makes all of his I am statements. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the bread of life. I am. And, and, and I would have thought, man, John is written because he said, I could have recorded all the works of God, but the world could not have contained that book. So what I did is I chose eight of them, and I recorded these eight. Anybody remember why he chose those eight to record them? I have written these things that you might believe and that by believing you would have eternal life. I would think, let's go to the book of John. But they went to Genesis, and I thought, why? What are you doing there? Anybody would have thought along those lines with me? This makes no sense. Why are you going to Genesis? In 1859, Charles Darwin released his theory of evolution. What did Charles Darwin attack from the very beginning? What was his attack upon? Creation. Y'all, if we, if we avoid Genesis, see, Genesis is a foundational point to prove what? Who God is. What is God like? It's the book that proves that God is eternal. Because he was there when there was no world. It's the book that proves that God is powerful and that he spoke and it came into existence. And not only did it come into existence, but when he looked at it, he deemed that it was what? This is good. This is good. It's the same book that describes man created in God's image and placed in a perfect setting. It's the book that describes sin. It is the book that lets us know the cost of sin, the price of sin. It is a book by which the foundational truths that are necessary to lead somebody to Christ are found. Not that you can't find them elsewhere. And I'm not saying that we ought to abandon the New Testament, go to the book of Genesis. But what I'm saying is, is we need to understand that's the problem. There is a battle for foundational truths. The one truth that says there is a God, there is a man created in the image of God, and that man sinned, and here's what sin did. But then there's the other viewpoint. And we'll talk a lot about that over the next several weeks. And there is a battle now. outside of our small rural school districts. Most kids sitting in an elementary class are being told a whole lot more about humanism and evolution and all of these things and not hearing one word 
about God and the Creator. And so when you meet them on the street and you start talking about God and who He is and what He's done in sin, they look at you like a deer in the headlight. I ain't got a clue what you're talking about. Moms and dads are not faithful enough to carry their kids to church anymore. Humanism and, and, and pluralism and relevancy of the Word of God, all that is affected and infected our culture. And so we can't just go out and just start talking about the cross of Calvary right now. Because they don't share the same fundamental foundational truths that even the lost people of my generation shared. You and I got to know that. And if we don't, and we don't accept it as real, and we continue to stick our head in the sand and say, oh, this is Arkadelphia. <laughs> I was working that softball game at uh, Washita Friday. Uh, right after I got in from visiting with Brother Allen in the hospital and was working that game and there was a couple of girls on the softball team after the game that I was talking with and, and uh, inviting them to church and, and, and seeing if I could get a door open to talk to them about salvation. And it was so funny. One of them was from Texas and one of them was from another town in the in, here in Arkansas and they just couldn't believe podunk Arkadelphia and that's the way they put it there just ain't nothing here to do <laughs> sometimes we think about Arkadelphia as being small and it is and to be honest with you I'm kind of thankful for that to some extent but if you think for a moment that because our town is small and that we're still in that rural setting of, of 50 years ago in the United States of America in Arkansas, you're sadly mistaken. Sadly mistaken. As I mentioned, I've, I've met kids on this street, live in this community. They know we're a church, but they ain't got any clue beyond that. The battle for foundational truths, I've got to hurry on. In Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, and the Lord took the man, and he put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest of it thereof thou shalt surely die. Now chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you're not going to die. You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. By the way, just for your information, I know some of you are already going to know what I'm about to say. Circle that second word in that sentence. God with a capital G. Go down and circle the gods with a small letter G. And make this note, please. It is exactly the same word in the Hebrew. All right? That is so important to understand that. 
We see the gods with a little g and we get one idea. But when we see God with a capital G, another idea comes in mind. Here's what Satan says. Eve, if you will eat of that fruit of that tree, I'm telling you, you will be like him. And Eve thought, wow, that sounds pretty good. Please note that in your Bible. And When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. By the way, let me just stop here in case I forget to do this later. Do not, do not throw stones at Eve. You want those stones, throw them at Adam. In fact, that's what Paul said. At least when Eve ate from that fruit of the tree, she did it because she was deceived by the liar. Adam ate it because he simply rebelled against God. You want to throw stones, throw it at Adam. Don't throw them at Eve. She saw the fruit. It looked good to the eyes. It was something to be desired. She took the fruit thereof and she ate it. And she gave it also to her husband. And he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened. And then they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron. As Genesis opens, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bible to the book of uh, Ezekiel, we'll be there in just a few moments, Ezekiel 28. As Genesis opens, we find God. We find that he exists in unity, but yet in distinct personages because he says, let us make man in our image. We find the entrance of sin. We find the entrance of Satan. We find the destructive nature of sin, the consequences of sin. We find God to be eternal and all-powerful. I would submit to you that these are foundational truths that you and I understood as kids growing up that the kids of our generation do not and we can't reach them with the same message that reached us because of the fundamental foundational truths that you and I know to be true that they do not. You can't start off at the cross if they don't know they need a Savior. If they don't know that they need a Savior because of sin, then you can't just simply say, repeat a prayer after me. And of course, none of this matters if we don't get to that place that we are willing to get up and go out and do to reach those that need to know Him. Have you ever thought about it this way? Before God said, let there be. What was there? What was there out there? <laughs> That's it. Nothing but him. There were no angels. There was no heaven. There was no earth. There wasn't even time. Time did not even exist yet. There was nothing but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's all there was. And those three are one God, and they are absolutely in uni unity. So that being the case, before ever Genesis 1-1 begins, how many wills were there out there? Just his. Just one. 
The Son never challenged the Father's will. The Holy Spirit never challenged the Son's will. The, the Father did not challenge the Son's will or the Holy Spirit's will. There was one will. There was one world view. And that's why I've entitled this morning, A Battle for Foundational Truths. Because all of a sudden, Satan became an opposing will and an opposing foundational truth, having a completely different worldview. Now, here's what Satan did. Satan said, Heather, why don't you come over to my worldview? And he's going to come to these young ones, and he's going to say, why don't you accept what I'm telling you? God is mean. You'll never enjoy life following him. And truth be known, he's going to say, look at all those people in that church that do. You see any joy, you see any excitement, you see anything. You cannot have any fun. You cannot enjoy life. God's holding back on you. That's what he's doing. He's mean. You want to have fun? You want to get rich? You want to be powerful? Follow me. In Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning in verse 12, I, I'm running out of time, and I don't have time to go through all, but we'll, we'll do this at a later point in time. It is true that these verses are written to the king of Tyre, but all of a sudden we see that it has a dual fulfillment because some of the statements that are made cannot be made about a human, even the king of Tyre. So there are statements here that, yes, pertain to him, but they reach beyond him and reach to the one that he represents, and that is Satan. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, You seal up the sum full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Let's stop for just a minute. What does it mean to seal up the sum perfect in beauty and perfect in wisdom? What does that mean? What does it mean to seal up the sum? That's not a term or a phrase we use regularly, but you should be able to uh, come to a grips of what it means. What does it mean to seal up the sum of something? You're total. Listen, there's nothing lacking, all right? You are in your beauty and in your wisdom. You are second only to God. There is not another angel that is any more beautiful than you, Lucifer. There is not another angel that is any more wise and smart and powerful than you. When we get to the book of Isaiah, we're going to find that God set Lucifer in a place that nobody else had ever sat, second only to the Trinity. He was the anointed cherub. There's a hierarchy of angels in heaven. And Lucifer was at the very top rung of the ladder. You're beautiful. You're powerful. You have wisdom and intelligence. Verse 13, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. So here we begin to understand Satan. Before there was an Adam and Eve, before there was a world, 
God in that place where there was nothing else but him and only his will and his view created angels. Because the angels were there, according to the book of Job, whenever he created the world. So before the world, the angels, all right? Now, get, follow along with me. So here's all of these angels before the world was created. Why were these angels created? For God's honor, for God's pleasure, to worship him. Here's the thing. You know what Satan used to do? Worship God. And all of a sudden one day Satan says, I'm tired of giving worship. It's time for me to receive some worship. And all of a sudden there is now a shift. There is a second viewpoint. There is a second truth. And he's going to sell that. Satan says, I'm, I'm no longer interested in worshiping God. He created me, it's true. But it's about time people recognize who I am and worship me. I will no longer worship. In fact, I will receive worship. And from that moment, there was a division in the vastness of the empty space. Before there was a world, there was already a division. And if you don't know anything about division, which I hard find hard that a Baptist wouldn't know anything about division. <laughs> but if you know anything about division, what does division always do? It always tears down and weakens. How many churches have been weakened because of division? How was Satan weakened because of this division? How is humanity weakened? Let me tell you this, just to put it simply. The life that you and I now live is a far cry less than the life God intended us to live. And it's because of this brand new, divisive worldview, foundation of truth. Read with me, if you will, in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 15, thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. God said, I created you for this. And in that state, you were most beautiful. You were, you, were, you were very powerful. You were the anointed cherub. You were the one that covereth. You were over all of them. I set you so. You were on my holy mountain. You walked up and down in the midst of it. And you were perfect in all of your ways until one day iniquity was found in you. It amazes me that our culture shies away from the preaching of iniquity and sin. If there was no sin, there's no need to go to a Savior. Why do we want to cut that out? Why do we want to soften the message? Well, we don't want to offend them. If you don't get them lost, you're never going to get them saved. Not genuinely. 
you were perfect in your ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? I may have actually had those verses from Ezekiel still. I apologize. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Verse 12, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon, I hit the button too quick, pardon me. I will sit, uh, uh, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Anybody ever watched the movie Patton? Oh my gracious, am I the only one that's seen Patton? Man, that's a classic. How have you not seen it? If you've not seen Patton, you need to go watch it. It's, it's, it's a great movie. It's a long movie, uh, and, 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 but you need to watch that. If you remember, there was a scene from, from Patton. You see, Patton was the American general, and he was the first one to encounter the take the tank corps uh, of Germany's North African Army under the command of another brilliant German uh, war strategist, Rommel. Patton always referred to Rommel as what? Does anybody remember? The Desert Fox. Yeah, Brother David's seen it. The Desert Fox. Rommel's tanks had been destroying the Western armies, and Patton once thinks him, or, but Patton outthinks him and is waiting for Rommel with an ambush. The desert fox is routed, and Patton, who has succeeded by studying Rommel's, Rommel's writing, is jubilant. He laughs and he says, Rommel, you son of a gun, I read your book. Y'all, have we not read, not Rommel's book, but Satan's book? I'm not sure we act like it sometimes. Let's go back and read Satan's book. That's what we're doing here. I know it's God's book, but this is God's book, his writings on Satan and Satan's tactics. And, and I know I'm belaboring the point of, of Satan and not dealing so much with Adam and Eve, but there's just so much. And, and I want to show you this is, his, this is his SOP, military. What's SOP? Standard Operating Procedures. It's what he tried, and it's what he's trying on humanity. So let's go back and let's look at these five I will statements. Because it is, it is for the first time that there is not one will and one view and one just foundational truth God is God we are created for his honor and his glory and 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 he has blessed us immensely and that's what he tells Adam and Eve I put you in the garden we'll talk a lot more about that later but it starts here with Satan and we need to read that old desert fox's book know how he works moms and dads if you love your kids at all you read Satan's book you know how he operates because he hadn't changed tactics yet. You know why? They still work. 6,000 years. And they still work. Probably better now than they ever have before. 
all of a sudden there is division and separation. The beginning of a second viewpoint and a second will. He says, I will ascend into heaven. For him to say that I will ascend into heaven, what first must be true? He's not in heaven, right? But yet we find him in the book of Job in heaven, do we not? And we do not, do we not see that Jesus, do we not read in the gospels where Jesus said, I saw him falling like lightning to earth? So well, wait a minute, why is he saying I will ascend into heaven and yet the Bible seems to indicate that he is in heaven? He's not in heaven all the time. He had access to heaven. Why? He was the anointed cherub. He was that special angel above all other angels. He was the one that was created for God's service to go and do what God would have him to do and to worship God. He had access, but it wasn't his home. You know what he's saying in, in his first I will statement? I ain't playing second fiddle to him no more. And he's not saying, listen to me, we're going to see this later on, but he's not saying, God, move over because I'm going to join you up there. He's saying, God, you're sitting in my seat. That's my seat. The arrogance, the pride, the, the, the stupidity of a created being looking at his creator and saying, you're sitting in my seat. Is mind-boggling. And yet to him it makes perfect sense. Hang on. I was hoping I'd get a few amens because I wanted to trick you a little bit. Not really trick you, but hang on and listen to this. It made perfect sense to him, and when he sells it to humanity, it makes perfect sense to them too. That's what he told Eve. You can replace him. I will ascend into heaven. Not move over, God. I'm coming to join you. Get out of my way, God. It's a brand new foundational truth. And humanity is eat up with it now. That we can become gods. I will rise above the angels. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Isn't it amazing? If you have to exalt your throne, obviously it's not there then right now, is it? Again, the, just the, the, it makes no sense. You created me. You set me. I owe my life. I owe my position. I owe my power. I owe my existence. I owe my wisdom. I owe my beauty. I owe everything to you. But all of a sudden, I'm going to tell you, get out of the way, and I'm going to take my throne that's here, and I'm going to put it up there where yours is. It makes no sense at all. But it did to him, and again, it does to humanity today. They're buying it hook, line, and sinker. The foundational truth of who God is is not a foundational truth in the masses of humanity today. Maybe a few, but not in the masses of humanity. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. By the way, when we say stars of God here, we're not talking about those twinkle, twinkle little stars. In the book of Job, the stars of God are referred to as who? The angels. <laughs> Satan was already over the angels. God said him so. 
but he was still under God. And it was God that told angels where to go and what to do and how to serve. And Satan said, I'm tired of playing second fiddle to him. I want to be the one. And it made perfect sense to him. Why shouldn't I be? I will rise above all the other angels of God. He says, I will sit upon the mount of congregation. In Isaiah 2, 2, please write these down. I don't have time this morning to read them. Isaiah 2, 2, 40, uh, Psalm 48, 2. Isaiah 2, 2, Psalm 48, 2 are all references to this idea of the mount of congregation. And the mount of congregation is there referred to as Jerusalem. As that place where God is to be worshipped. When he says, I will sit on the mount of congregation, what he's saying is it will no longer be Jehovah God who is worshipped, it will be me. I will sit there. And the angels will worship me. And humanity will worship me. Now hang on. I know this is going to go down crooked for some of us, but humanity's going to worship me, and Jehovah God will start worshiping me. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. Made perfect sense to him. It was a new mindset that had never existed until he came along. And that's what he tried to sell Adam and Eve. And that's what he's selling today. Just a couple more and we'll close. I will ascend above the clouds. There's some discussion whether the clouds refer to the clouds that we see in the sky. It certainly doesn't seem to flow in the order here. Some think that it refers to that Shekinah glory cloud of God. Whatever it may be, and we may not know on this side of eternity, know this, it is another step of being where God sits. I will be like the Most High. I will make myself to be like the Most High. Here is the key to it all. That word Most High is El Elyon. El is the shortened or abbreviated version of Elohim God, and Elyon is high. So El Elyon is God high or God most high. He said, I will be that. That term begins to take a little bit of shape for us in Genesis 14, 18, and 19. If you want to look there, Genesis 14, 18, and 19. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is coming and he meets Abram. He meets him with bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God. And here's what he said, Possessor of heaven and earth. You want to know what the term God Most High means? It means to be the one that possesses all of heaven and all of earth. And here is Satan saying, God, you don't possess it anymore. It's mine. I, I will become the most high. It's a far cry different from the only will, the only view that existed from the beginning of time. Some level of that existed in the United States. 
I was telling a church member this morning, if you'll study church history and you'll study Christianity, you're going to find out, uh, what do most people refer to the southern part of the United States as? What? Bible Belt. You might be interested to know the Bible Belt, maybe in the term, is not found in, in the past, but guess what? The idea or that, that, that kind of that stronghold of Christianity Y'all, please understand, it didn't start in the United States of America. We're such an arrogant people. <laughs> There's been a Bible Belt for years and centuries. But you know what's fascinating? The Bible Belt is often moving. Often moving. I, I would submit to you, because it's already happened, I will submit to you that if the Lord does not return before then, there will be nations sending missionaries back to the United States of America to preach the gospel here. In fact, one of the guys that began Answers in Genesis is an Australian who came back and will tell you that his estimation is Australia has a Bible belt that America no longer has. The culture is changing. And it won't work anymore to just get to a cross. Now, if you walk out of here and say, Brother Jeff said the cross is not powerful and the preaching, I'm going to come after you. I'm just going to come after you. All right? That's not what I'm saying. But y'all, they don't know anymore about one God, the only true God. They don't know anymore about sin. And you've got to build that foundation if you're ever going to see them come to know Christ. Praying God open the doors. It may be that it takes us a while to lay that foundation. And more often than not, it will. But there will be times if we're praying and asking and serving God already, that's part of it. God doesn't often call those that are not serving to do something more or greater. But we studied this morning in, in, in the young adult class, Philip, who was preaching revival services and were leading people by, by busloads to the Lord. And all of a sudden, God says, I want you to leave that. <laughs> what, 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 what? Obviously, Lord, you don't know how good a preaching I'm doing here. I mean, there's people coming right and left. Now, now listen to me now. I want you to leave that. I want you to go out into the middle of the desert. Well, Lord, there ain't no big cities in the middle of the desert. No, but there's one man. One man. And I'm already working on his heart. He won't know you from Adam. But I'm opening a door for you, Philip. You need to understand up front. He's going to have a different colored skin than you do. He's going to have a much higher exalted position than you do. He's going to have power. He's going to have all this. I'm not interested in any of that. I'm telling you, I've opened a door. Go. Philip didn't have to build the relationship. But he did have to start with where that man knew. And he said, I don't understand. So Philip started right there. Before we sing a verse of imitation, I'd ask you to take your, red, or your white hymnal for just a moment and, and just read a verse with me. 
number 449. I'd ask us to sing it, but I ain't got a clue how it goes because I ain't never heard. I know I'm using ain'ts. I, listen to me. Does this not speak volumes? I ain't never heard a missionary Baptist church sing 449. Wow. Does that not speak volumes? Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. It's not lay that soul that thinks just like me, that looks like me, that dresses like me, that listens to the same music, that's pulling for the same team tonight that I'm pulling for. Lord, you lay a soul. Put it on my heart. And God, would you love that soul through me? And may I always do my part to win that soul for thee. Fathers, we stand now. Prepare for this verse of invitation. I, I understand that there very well may be some today that are offended as if I have... Uh, just beat this church up and Lord you know my heart that's not the desire and I hope it's not the way it is taken God there's an absence of that desire that the apostle Paul had he said God I, I look at my nation and they know about your righteousness but they won't accept it they're trying to develop their own righteousness and they're trying to leave you out of the equation and God, my heart's prayer and desire. Oh, God, that they would be saved. And we know the Apostle Paul was willing to be used in whatever way he could to make that a reality. God, I, I pray. I don't know your Holy Spirit. I, I don't know. But if you're, if you're dealing with faith right now as a whole or each individual member and we need to get serious about, God, we've, we've sat around now for quite a while and we've not really done much as far as reaching the world. Then give us a heart that's willing and humble enough to accept that and to admit it and confess it to you and to ask you. God, for number 449 in our hymnal, may we beg today that you would put a soul on our heart, that you would love that soul through us and help us to do our part to reach that soul for thee. May you move in our midst now. May we understand it has become a matter of life or death. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen.